What'd you say? 35. Exactly. Today is 35. That's excellent. Well done. And we did not corroborate ahead of time. So now I, I, I and, and we're halfway through the book, but that the second half will not take nearly as long. I, you know what? I'm standing here t- promising you something that I know I don't. <laughs> You're all sitting there going, we'll see, mister. We'll see. I'm not trying to make it long. I love what we're studying in this book. Um, it has been, uh, it has quickly become my favorite book of the Bible. Preaching the gospel, the gospel of Exodus has been a great joy. And so anyway, this morning we are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And if you're a guest with us this morning, we are wrapping up the final word of the 10 words. And so let me read to you Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, which gives us the final word. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Father in heaven, as we take some time together now this morning as brothers and sisters, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes, that your spirit would affect our hearts, and that your spirit would strengthen our wills with the words that we're going to find in your word. Help us to understand them and to be motivated by them and convicted by them and given hope by them and challenged to live by them. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you want? What do you want this morning? How would you fill in the blank? If only I had blank. If only I had blank, then I'd I'd be content. I'd be content if only I had blank. And, and, and for any of us, for all of us, there's something that we're thinking about, or there should be something that you're thinking about right now that fills in the blank. Whether you're a teenager, a middle-ageder, or an oldie, right? There's, for all of us, there's something that goes in that blank. If only I had that house or a house, or that cabin that they have, or that camper that they have, or that farm, or that ranch, or the water pressure that they have on their ranch. I mean, I never knew that such a thing existed until I moved out here, and people were talking about, there's, there's, you guys talk about water pressure, and then you say numbers. And I don't know what any of those numbers ever mean. I get such and such numbers, and I'm like, I don't, is that gallons? I don't know what he's talking about. Or the job that I've always wanted, or the income that I've always wanted, or a wife, or his wife, right? I, if I only had his wife, then I'd be happy. Oh, if I only had children, or their children, 
If I only had a dad or a dad like him or a husband or her husband or a family, if only I had those employees or that employer, if only I could go on those kinds of vacations or if I had his looks or her looks or her waistline or his hairline. Or if I only had that kind of education or those opportunities or that pickup truck, if only I had blank, then I'd be okay. I'd be happy. I'd be content. I'm going to say it again here in just a few minutes, but let me tell you something right now that it may not be the most encouraging moment in the sermon this morning, but let me tell you this. There is nothing that you can get. There is nothing that you can get that will bring you contentment if you aren't content now. If you aren't content now and you think, if I could just have fill in the blank, I promise you from the Word of God, which is the only thing that matters, but even from my own life's experience, you can get the thing and almost immediately think, hmm, it didn't do for me what I thought it was going to do for me. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, we're told, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And yet, almost constantly, we are being told that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. This is why commercials on television work. We didn't know that we needed that thing, that credit card, that beverage, that toothpaste, that deodorant, that, you know, cozy comfort blanket thing that zips up. Like, I mean, there's just, right, we're just constantly being shown something that we didn't even know existed. If I go into a Cabela's, it's bad, right? Because as as I walk through Cabela's, I see things that I didn't know existed, but now I have to have. I, I have to have that thing. 30 minutes ago, I didn't know it was on the planet. I had no idea that that thing existed, but now that I see it, man, I got to have that thing. And then what do we do? We buy that thing. And then we realize, huh, yeah, I actually probably didn't even need that thing. Friends, are you content this morning? Are you content right here, right now, with what God has given you? because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. See, I think a lot of times we run around in life, we run around in life looking for things to satisfy us, and those things can't do it. How many of you have in your home right now, it's going to be a home with children or grandchildren, or you, know, you have grandchildren, you have um, fa- uh, fake plastic food that kids play with, right? Okay, yeah, I think we still have something, right? D- okay. But everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Like there's the little fake roasted chicken and the little fake plastic peas and the little fake, everybody's nodding their heads. Okay, we know what this is like. So imagine, imagine that I'm hungry, that I'm really hungry. And I go home and I ask Angie, where's the food? And she starts bringing out to me this plastic food. And I say, okay, 
but for some reason this isn't satisfying me. I'm still hungry. So I go to your house and I ask for your plastic food and, and I, I accumulate and I accumulate and I have all sorts of, I mean, I just, my life is crowded with plastic food and yet I keep thinking I'm hungry. I'm not being satisfied by these things. And you would take me to the pavilion and you would medicate me and you would have a doctor, right? Evaluate me to take care of me because I really have a problem. But brothers and sisters, our problem is no more ridiculous than that. And we have this desire, we have this yearning, we have a desperate want, a desperate need, a, uh, a desire that we can't exactly always put words to, and we accumulate and accumulate, and we get more land, and we get more trucks, and we get more women, and we get more men, and we get more money, and we, sat, and we get more food, and we get more clothes, and we get more watches, and we get more guns. And we, no, guns are okay. Um, right? And, and then, but then we wonder, we're like, I'm, I'm, my life is crowded with these things, but I'm still, I'm still hungry. Brothers and sisters, God tells his people, Israel, here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What does it mean to covet? And before we even really dive into the heart of the message here this morning, let me, let me make clear Let's understand clearly what covetousness is. Covetousness, to covet something, isn't simply to desire something. Desires often are a very appropriate and necessary part of life. I woke up this morning desiring coffee and breakfast. That's, that's a good thing. Your body woke up desiring oxygen, right? You desire to feed your family and take care of your children, so you go to work. The desires and legitimate desires and even desires for possessions and for things, those in and of themselves are not sinful and they are not wrong. Covetousness happens when one of two things occurs in our hearts and in our minds. Covetousness can happen in one of two ways. One way is this. Me wanting something that you and only you have and wanting it inappropriately. He has that farm. I want not a farm, not more land than he has. I want that farm. She has that husband. I want him. I want that husband. That's, that's one way that we can be covetous. When someone has something and we want their specific thing for ourselves, that's covetousness. Another way in which covetousness is manifest itself is wanting something so much that you're no longer content. I want a shotgun. I want a new pickup truck. I want more land, and I'm not okay until I get it. These are the ways that covetousness make themselves manifest in our lives. And here's the main point this morning. The main point this morning is this. Only Jesus can satisfy you. I promise that's true. Some of you have been 
trying long enough now to find other things to satisfy you, even wonderful things, even good things that do bring you joy and do bring you pleasure. But we've talked about this so many times in our congregation before. Gifts make terrible gods. And when we take the good things of God and we seek to make them ultimate things, even those things become bitter and unsatisfying to us. Our final time through this morning, we're going to use the same approach that we've used. We're going to look at this final word and Israel. Then we're going to look at the final word and you. And then we're going to look at the final word and Jesus Christ. These ten commandments, these ten instructions, these ten good things that God has given to his people, brothers and sisters, are ten good things for us to remember. You, you, you ready? We're going to go through them with the hand signals one more time. How many of you, this has helped you remember the Ten Commandments? Fantastic. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make unto thee any graven image. Right, if you're here this morning, you're like, what are you doing? This is someone who's kneeling and they're bowing down to a graven image. Okay. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord. You're welcome to do it with me. I see a lot of you doing it. I know it's not cool, but it's helpful. Um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Again, that's, I think, sign language for father and mother. Number six, thou shalt not kill. This is someone killing someone else. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Two people, other people coming between two people. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. Right, It's taking something that's not yours. Number nine, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. I still have it in King James, thou shalt not. Right, And then number 10 is thou shalt not covet. Or number 10, thou shalt not covet. Right? There's 10 easy ways for us to remember these good, helpful instructions from God. As we look at the final word this morning, let's first look and just be reminded of what God is doing here with the nation of Israel. He is giving them these 10 instructions, and he's going to give, I mean, we're not finishing the instruction for Israel here at the end of chapter 20. I mean, chapter the end of chapter 20 and 21. Just let your eyes go ahead to verse 22 of chapter 20, and you can see many of your Bibles have headings there. Laws about altars, and then verse chapter 21, laws about slaves, end of 21, laws about restitution, right? There's a lot, there's a lot more law coming. These 10 commandments, uh, these 10 laws um, uh, necessitate real special uh, uh, observation here. But the people of Israel are being given these good guidelines, these good instructions for how to live their best life now. He, Obey me, God says, and, and follow my instructions by doing these things. And again, the, the people of Israel right now, they're in the wilderness wandering. They're going from place to place. And God, in this 10th commandment, does something where he addresses specifically their hearts in a unique way. We're going to talk about that more here in just a minute. But imagine we're making our way through the wilderness. We're making our way. Um, it's this wilderness wandering time. And, uh, you know, let's say that my tent is kind of, uh, you know, is, is pinched, pitched over near the Watkins tent, right? And I, uh, you know, Moses has given us these, these Ten Commandments. And I look over and, and I see that, you know, that Alan's got a new, a new donkey as I mean, it's nice. You know, I mean, it's like, how many horsepower does a donkey have? It may not even have a single horsepower. I don't know. 
But he somehow has bred donkeys, and they have five horsepower donkeys uh, in Israel. And I'm looking at his donkey and going, man, I want a donkey like that. But there's not a donkeys.com. There's not Amazon. Like, there's no, how am I supposed to get? A, and so the, the unique challenge of coveting things that are your neighbors, I think, is especially unique to Israel. I mean, it, it's in the human heart all the time. But they're in a place at the moment where anything other than what they have belongs to someone else. Right? So I see your tent, and I go, your tent's nicer than my tent. Or I, I see your wife, right? And I think your wife's nicer than my wife. Or I see your slaves, and I think, what? Well, you know, and there's, I'm looking around, and I'm seeing things that you have, and I'm going, man, I, I want that for me. But there isn't somewhere else for me to get it. And God is addressing something that, I mean, again, I don't think the people of Israel had hearts that were more covetous than our hearts are today. We're going to make that clear here in just a minute. But they are in some unique circumstances right here as they are making their way toward the promised land. And then eventually they make their way into the promised land. This kind of desire, this inappropriate desiring of what belongs to my neighbor would quickly lead to very serious, very big problems if God didn't say, don't covet the things that are your neighbors. Israel wasn't, I mean, and, and even the nation of Israel, they're not the first ones to, to struggle with covetousness. Who's the, who, who's the, what, what's the first example in the Bible of covetousness? Yeah, it doesn't take long, does it? No, no, right, right there. The serpent, when the serpent goes to Eve and tempts Eve, is it that she was so hungry and she had nothing else to eat and here was a piece of fruit and he says to her, hey, I know you're hungry, here's something to eat? It wasn't the physical appetite that he was, that he was going after. There, he said, if you eat this, you will be wise like God, knowing good from evil. And Eve realizes something that, there, that there's something that belongs only to God and she wants it for herself. And so she covets the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, she didn't have a full understanding of what she was doing in that moment, but she covets what was not hers to possess, and she eats of that fruit. One pastor commentator says this, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Before Eve took the forbidden fruit, she coveted it. It was not because she admired it as a piece of fruit, but because Satan tempted her to envy by telling her that if she ate it, she would be like God. Eve took the fruit to gain something that she was not intended to have. And just like Eve and just like Adam and just like their descendants, you and I continue to struggle with this sin of covetousness. Maybe the most, uh, maybe the most prominent example of covetousness in the Bible is the story of King Ahab. And he wanted a piece of property that wasn't his own. You remember, he wanted someone's vineyard. You remember the guy's name? He wanted Naboth's vineyard. Now, Angie and I had the privilege of going to Israel a few years ago, and we actually stood where scholars, ar archaeologists, and smart guys assume they know where Ahab's um, uh, palace was, and they even say, we really think that right about here is where Naboth's vineyard would have been. There's a natural spring of water that's, that wells up there, and because land 
uh, belong to specific tribes and specific families, these smart guys have said, no, we're, like, we're, we're almost certain that right here is where, Angie and I, I mean, I've got, a, in my photos, I've got a picture of where Naboth's vineyard, we presume, would have been. And King Ahab, who, I mean, could kind of possess and do, I mean, he's the king, he could do what he wanted. He sees not just that he wants another place to grow some vegetables and to grow some grapes. He finds a place, and he wants that place in particular. And so he asks Naboth, Hey, will you sell this to me, or I'll give you another farm. We'll, we'll do some trading, we'll do some bartering, or I'll just buy it outright from you. And Naboth realizes this land belongs to my family, and it's not mine to sell. I can't do it. And so King Ahab brings in two witnesses. Remember what we talked about last week? Thou shalt not bear false witness. King Ahab brings in two witnesses who bear false witness against Naboth, and Naboth, they say that this man has blasphemed God, and that Naboth is taken out and killed, and uh, Ahab takes this vineyard for himself. Ahab, in breaking the tenth commandment, breaks the ninth commandment of bearing false witness, the eighth commandment about not stealing, and the sixth commandment about don't kill. Do you see how quickly the sin of covetousness leads us to so many other sins, sins that you and I would never be tempted with or struggle with, but King Ahab certainly did. This segues us into the final, the final word and us, or the final word and you. When we, when we begin to apply this final word about not coveting, we notice something unique about it really quickly. There's something about this 10th commandment that is distinctly different from all of the nine that precede it. And it's this. The 10th commandment is God forbidding you to do something that's on the inside of you and only you know about. Thou shalt not kill you know, that's, that's an outward thing. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't bow down to other graven images. And, and we know the New Testament makes it clear that all of those have uh, associated uh, heart sins that accompany them, and there are ways for us besides just the explicit and overt ways that those sins are listed here. But the 10th commandment starts and ends with what's on the inside of you. What's on the inside? It shines a spotlight into our hearts, and it's a place that only you and God know. It's the only commandment that is just completely on the inside. We can covet without anyone else ever knowing about it. And so we might look around and think, I'm actually a pretty good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. And then there's that doggone Tenth Commandment. And we go, hmm, thou shalt not covet. Each of the other commandments are commands that flow out of our hearts. But they're all things that have physical actions that accompany them. This command demands an honest assessment that only you can know about. Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, while he's writing to the, the people at Rome, 
he, he says something that is really interesting and really unique. And if you'd like to turn there, you can. Romans 7, I'll read verses 7 and 8. Let me read those verses to you. Paul says this, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What does he mean by that? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Do you ever, have you ever interacted with a child before and said, don't touch this thing on an end table, right? Whatever, don't touch the lamp. And the kid prior to that had no interest whatsoever in touching the lamp. But now that they have been told, don't touch the lamp, there is one mission in life. And that is, to touch the lamp. And I'm going to touch the lamp if mom's watching, and I'm going to touch the lamp if mom's not watching. And when mom goes into the other room, even if I'm in the back bedroom, I'm coming out to the living room because the lamp is there and it needs to be touched. And brothers and sisters, don't you and I both know this same kind of thing in our own hearts? We get, it's not just enough for us to speed and maybe sometimes get caught. We get the little fuzz buster on our dashboard so that we can just, like, we just are going to speed, man. Like, I didn't care about speeding until you told me that I could not go. It's like 75 miles an hour. That's like almost flying but on the ground, and we got to go faster. We want to go as fast as we possibly can, and don't you tell me I can't do it. I'm going to figure out a way. It's like that when you were told don't speed, the law sprung up in your heart producing all kind of speediness. That's what Romans 7 and 8 is saying. I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, my sinfulness produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I didn't know it was a sin to want what wasn't mine. I didn't know it was a sin to really want something so much that I'm dissatisfied with it. But once I found out that that's sin as well, well, now I see it all over the place in me. Brothers and sisters, I think we don't realize how covetous we are because everyone is so covetous. It's actually considered a little bit of a virtue in our world. We, we actually think that that it's a, it's a sign of a good, diligent person if they're just always discontent with where they are and that they want more. And more and more and more. We covet because our hearts have infinity in them. They long for eternity. They have infinite desires. I actually love this old illustration. I didn't come up with it. I don't remember who did. But your heart has a, a whole, a, a, an infinite-shaped hole in it. Right Now, in, infinity is something that I can't understand, but it's bigger than any... I mean, it's just infinite. Right? When you use the same word to describe, then you're not using words very well. Right? And so how much stuff does it take to fill up an infinite hole? Yeah, yeah. 
And, and you can take all of it and throw it in the infinite hole, and it still isn't full. It, the, the desire, she doesn't agree with what I'm saying, I guess. I'm sorry, babe. Um, I feel the same way sometimes. Our hearts, our hearts desire something to fill them. And there is no amount of finite stuff that can fill infinitude. And we, we hope, we desire, we think that more money, more land, more food, more whatever, more pleasure, that this will bring our hearts satisfaction, and they don't. Might you be covetous? Well, let's take a little test together. Here, here are four questions that you can ask yourself Four ways to evaluate. These are from Kevin DeYoung's book on the Ten Commandments. He says this, you might be coveting, number one, you might be coveting if you hurt others in order to get more for yourself. You might be coveting if you hurt others to get more for yourself. And you think, well, I, I don't do that. I don't, I don't hurt others. But let me ask you this. Does your covetousness ever, even in an unintentional way, hurt other people? Do you hurt other people in your business dealings? Do you hurt your children in your pursuit of other things? Do you pursue, Do you hurt another family or your own family in your pursuit of things? Do you hurt other people? Number two, you might be coveting if you're preoccupied with making and accumulating more. You're just preoccupied with making and accumulating more. More stuff, more stuff, more stuff. You're preoccupied with it. It, it uh, occupies your thoughts. Your, uh, there, there isn't downtime in your thinking because you're always thinking how to make and accumulate more stuff. Number three, you might be coveting if you're unwilling to give up what you already have. How tightly do your fingers grasp the things that you currently have? I think sometimes we think it's rich people who covet or it's poor people who covet. Both can covet. Coveting is not a, uh, it's an equal opportunity kind of sin. You remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? This is really interesting to me. Remember how Paul said, I wouldn't have known sin except for the law about coveting? The rich, I think Paul is someone who responds properly to the 10th commandment, and the rich young ruler is someone who realizes the same thing Paul did but responds wrongly to the 10th commandment. Think about this for a second. In, uh, I think it's Matthew I've got the verses here in my Bible, but I forgot to write the, uh, the reference in here. I think it's Matthew. Um, it says this, And behold, a man who came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Remember what Jesus tells him? Sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. I think Jesus is getting at the 10th the tenth commandment in this guy's heart. I don't think Jesus has just changed tactics. Jesus has just said, keep all the commandments. And the, and, and the young man says, which ones? And Jesus lists a bunch and he goes, I've kept all those. And then Jesus goes, okay. Drum roll, final word, number 10. Don't covet. Go, go sell all your possessions. And th- this is not how someone becomes a Christian. Jesus is getting at this young man's willingness to keep all of God's commands, including the 10th one. And you will have treasure in heaven. And now come follow me. In verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. He had great possessions. But do you know what? Those great possessions had him. Oh, he thought he had great possessions, but those possessions actually had their talons. They had their claws in the heart of this young man. Brothers and sisters, Jesus himself says, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why is it? Because we want to serve mammon. We want to serve wealth and prosperity and things rather than God. Number four, what's the fourth way uh, that you may, be, or the fourth question to ask yourself regarding the covetousness test? You might be coveting if, number four, you're frequently grumbling about your house or your spouse. You're grumbling about the quality or quantity of your possessions, or you're just generally grumbling about the state of your life. Are you discontent? The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Man, like that is so clear, so powerful, so riveting. It's so convicting And yet we don't believe it. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. God is telling you, if you love money, if you're in the pursuit of money, if your desire is to have and to get more money, you will not be satisfied with money. That verse goes on to say, nor he who loves wealth with his income. One of the late Rockefellers, uh, I, I can't remember which Rockefeller it was, but it was one of the billionaire Rockefellers, was asked, how much money does it take to be happy? Some of you know the answer, what the answer he gave. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit more. How much money do you need to be happy? Says one of the wealthiest men in the history, men of, the, in the, history of, the, of the world. Just a little bit more, just one more dollar. Then... But God says, if you love money, you will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Number three, 
the final word, the Tenth Commandment, and Jesus Christ. Now, we know that Jesus Christ went through this life, and he was a, he was a humble man. He, you know, the Bible talks about that, that he, didn't, he often didn't have a place uh, to lay his head. Jesus didn't come, and he wasn't born in a palace, and he never lived in a palace, and he lived a very, a very humble life. Jesus was content. Jesus himself was, this, was the perfect Israelite. He was the perfect human being. Jesus was, he lived a life that was full of contentment. Now, Jesus had desires. He was hungry and sleepy and tired. He had desires, but Jesus was never um, discontent. He was never covetous. Not only was Jesus not covetous, but Jesus is actually the answer to our covetousness problems. Jesus is the answer to your desire for a new truck. Jesus is the answer to your desire, to your covetousness for a different spouse or a spouse or a house or I feel like I'm doing a Dr. Seuss, right? Like I can, you know, are you, are you happy with a house? Are you happy with your spouse? I can be happy here or there. I can be happy anywhere if... All right, that was not in my notes, okay? And unfortunately, it was recorded, so it's, <laughs> it's there. That's right. Jesus is the only one who will satisfy. I had Josh read Psalm 68. It was 68, right? Was it 68? 63. I had Josh read Psalm 63 on purpose this morning because in the middle of what he read, It says this, my soul will be satisfied. My soul will be, brothers and sisters, what we're talking about this morning, like your your bank account isn't saying, I need more money, I need more money, I need more money. Your wallet is not saying, I need some more cash. Your garage is not saying, we need another vehicle. Your heart is saying, I need more something. And we're inclined to look around and think, well, this Plastic food looks like it should satisfy me. The psalmist says, my soul will be satisfied. And then he uses some incredible imagery that all of us can relate to. My soul will be satisfied. This is Psalm 63, verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. A ribeye. Boom. Right? With some good marbling and some good fat. My... Like you eat that and man, it tastes good and you are satisfied. My soul will be satisfied like my mouth would be satisfied with a, with a ribeye. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When? When I remember you. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you. In the night watches. Do you see that what will satisfy your heart is a relationship, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? That's what you desire. That's what will satisfy. The psalmist is saying, I'm satisfied when I think, when I think about you. So we spend a lot of time thinking about whom? Ourselves. And we spend a lot of time thinking, if I can get more of this stuff, then I'll be happy. And the psalmist is giving us the secret. It's not a secret because it's obvious all through the Bible. The psalmist is saying, you want to be satisfied? You want your soul to feel like your stomach does 
on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon after a good meal, right? And you can barely keep your eyes open. Some of you can barely keep your eyes open. You must have just had a ribeye, um, right? I will, my soul will be satisfied when I remember you and meditate on you. You have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings, not to stuff, my soul clings to you. Brothers and sisters, your relationship with God is the thing that satisfies that longing in your heart. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 is a really, really famous, familiar verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And we write it on the locker room and the football, on the Christian football team, right? And we, we have it on note cards and we have it on bumper stickers. And we, right before we're getting ready to bench press the heaviest weight we've ever tried, right? We quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's the wrong way to think about that verse. Because in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says this. Don't take that verse out of context. Nine times out of ten, when you see that verse, it is being taken out of context. We're using it the wrong way. We've got to stop doing that. I've done it. You do it. Let's stop together this morning. And here's how we're going to stop doing it. We're going to understand what the verse means. Verse Philippians 4.10. You can turn there in your Bibles, right? It's more important for you to see this in the Bible than to hear it from me. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And now he's writing from prison, remember, and uh, I, rejoiced, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, right? Like you were concerned about me. You didn't have a way to take care of me. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, even though he's in prison. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. He's talking about contentment. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what he's talking about is contentment. He says, whatever situation I am, I can be content. Verse 12, it gets even better. I know how to be brought low. You know what happens when I'm brought low? I can, I can be brought low because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My contentment is not in my circumstances. My contentment is in Christ. I can be content in low circumstances because I have Christ. Um, in any and every circumstance, I've learned, uh, sorry, verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. So if I'm given the test of adversity and I'm brought low, I know how to abound and I know how to abound in the test of abundance, in the test of prosperity. Do you think that having a lot of stuff isn't still an incredible test from God as to where your heart and soul lies? There's, there is the test of adversity and the test of prosperity. And in our world and in our culture, the test of prosperity is the one that we fail most often. I have learned the secret of facing plenty, a refrigerator that's full, two refrigerators that's full, that are full, two refrigerators and two freezers that are full, and plenty and in hunger. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. Abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I can have a lot, I can have a little, I can be really hungry, I can be full. I can do all of these things. I can be content because I have a relationship with Christ. It's my relationship that Christ 
It's my relationship with Christ that strengthens me. Not to beat the football team, not to bench press heavy weight. It's my, it's my relationship with Christ that strengthens me, whether I'm going through the test of prosperity or I'm going through the test of adversity. It is a relationship with Jesus that brings your heart peace. Jesus himself is the one who fills the infinite hole in your heart. He's the only one who is infinite. What does it take to fill an infinite hole? An infinite God. And so that infinite longing, that infinite desire that you thought your spouse would, would fill and took you a week of marriage to realize, well, that didn't work. Or the new vehicle, right? And you immediately get a scratch on it and you think, oh, that didn't work. Augustine said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Brothers and sisters, God made you in his image, and he made you for himself. He made you to worship him. He wants to be in relationship with you. He didn't give you desires and then think, ha, it's going to really stink to be them for the rest of their lives. They're going to have these longings, and they're never going to find anything that's going to satisfy it. In fact, he actually says, stop, stop. If you love money, it's not going to satisfy you. I have made you for me. And I'm going to satisfy you with me. And so as we learn of God through the word of God and meditate on him in the night watches and remember, I'm yours. I'm okay. Like my marriage may not be what I want it to be and my pocketbook might not be what it wanted to be and my circumstances aren't what they want it to be. What I want them to be and my house doesn't look like the house I, want, I thought I would have at this age or whatever, whatever, whatever. But I have you. And you have taken care of my biggest problem. My biggest problem was that I had sinned against you and I was damned to hell. But you sent Jesus to bring me back to you. I created the problem. You created me for you. And I ran away from you, shaking my fist at you. You sent Jesus and you brought me back to you. And through repentance and faith, I am now made one with you and I can have relationship with you. And I remember my biggest problem, I may have problems on this earth. I will have problems on this earth. My biggest problem has been taken care of. It's good. And, and everything in the world is under your control. Man, that's really good because I'm not controlling much of anything very well right now. And all financial, uh, uh, everything in the world belongs to you. So if I have financial need, I'm going to trust you, not trust me. And and if you promise to, to satisfy all of my needs and to meet all of my needs and to, to, to give me the delights of my heart, well, then I'm going to go to you because you've actually told me those things won't be the delight. Those things won't satisfy me. You will, so I'm going to go to you. And brothers and sisters, let me say this, and I'm in good company because C.S. Lewis said it first. The problem isn't that we desire too much. We actually don't quite desire enough. I'll read Lewis's quote, which many of you have heard many times. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer 
of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, we will find the satisfaction of our souls and for our souls only in relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Why not? Because it won't do for you what you think it's going to do for you. It won't. You could get it. You could get it legally and lawfully. It's still not going to do for your heart and soul what you think it's going to do for you. Only Jesus can satisfy our souls. I want to conclude in a way that actually uh, is a conclusion to the entire series. And I've got a little bookmark handout for each of you. And I've asked some guys to hand those out. So brothers, if you would hand those out to everybody real quick. And I didn't hand them out yet because I wanted to wait and have us all look at them together. For all ten of the Ten Commandments, there are ways for us, and really all of God's law, all of God's instruction, all of the commands for us in the Bible, there are ways that we can read them with greater clarity now than ever before. And this little bookmark, it's not a, none of this is original with me. You'll even see there that it was prepared by uh, Ray Ortland Jr., who's a, uh, I think he's a retired pastor now in, um, I can't exactly remember where. Um, how to read the commands of the Bible. And there are four ways that I think as we move forward, whether we're reading the Ten Commandments or uh, admonition in the New Testament, other laws and commands of God, instructions and words of God, there are four ways that will help us as we read these together. And I'm going to go through these very quickly. Number one, and I would encourage you to keep this little bookmark in, in your Bible. Number one, I receive each command as revelation showing me the moral beauty of God, and I stand in awe of his glory. God gives me these commands. He's the only one who has ever perfectly, and, uh, perfectly fulfilled them in Jesus Christ, and these commands flow out of his moral character. You're not supposed to lie because God is truth. You're not supposed to commit adultery because God is faithful. All right, so number one, receive each commandment as revelation, showing you the moral beauty of God. Number two, receive each commandment as confrontation, showing me my urgent need for God. I open up to his scrutiny. God says, don't bear false witness, but I really struggle with whatever, gossip, lie, slander, Number three, I receive each command as instruction, showing me how to live in God's grace. And I ask him for strength to take the next step. God, you have given me the command to tell the truth, not to bear false witness. And so help me to live in such a way that my words are always speaking life and truth into the hearts and minds of other people. So it's Revelation of God, confrontation from God, instruction for how to live in a way that pleases God. And the number four, I receive each command. And this is a way that I don't think we often think of it. I receive each command as a promise. What do you mean a promise? Because God is writing his commands on my heart. And I rejoice that my perfect wholeness is coming soon. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day where we will be perfectly glorified and the Ten Commandments will come naturally. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to process that. I don't know how to process that. 
right? Yeah, I mean, other than like, just let's throw a party right now, you know. Um, yeah, the fact that it stops and kind of grinds our gears for a second shows us how wonderful. There is coming a day where the sinful nature, that covetousness that no one would know about except God said don't covet, that even that is going to be delivered. God is going to write his law on our hearts. We will live the way he originally created us and intended for us to live. It's a promise that there's coming a day where we will live this way. Christ lived it for us and will deliver us to a day where we will live that way as well. So use these four ways of reading the laws and commands and instructions, the words of God, Remember that they are revelation, confrontation, instruction, and promise. I ask you to bow your heads now and close your eyes and ask the music team to come. We're going to conclude our service together this morning in prayer. If you're here this morning and you hear these instructions from the Word of God and you think to yourself, I'm not sure that I'm actually a child of God, then repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And we would happily, I or one of the other pastors would gladly talk with you about that after the service this morning. I think for all of us in here, the awareness that our hearts are longing for something and so often we're trying to find something else to satisfy, it means that we need to repent and again believe the good news of the gospel, the goodness that Jesus is the only one whose relationship with him is the only thing that will satisfy us and satisfy us for eternity. Father, I pray as we conclude our service together in prayer and in singing and in prayer this morning that we would be people who look to you as the one who will satisfy our souls with, like, uh, uh, like with fatness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and we'll sing and then Pastor Will will come and close our service in prayer. Jesus said.